Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 46. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endured with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we truly need your help, even in joyful tidings, even in words which seem rather straightforward. They do us no good. There is no profit to them apart from the blessing of your Holy Spirit. Well, we're thankful that your promise was found true. Even as you promised to send your Spirit, so you did. And he is here among us this day. And how we pray, Lord, that you would therefore bless us and enable us to receive these things in faith with our eyes open. And yes, our hearts aflame with joy and thanksgiving. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, we at long last come to this final portion of the Gospel of Luke. It has been years now in Luke. And it is the end of this book, but it's not really the end, of course, because this book is only a prologue. It is part one of his two-part work, Luke's two-part work. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, he also wrote the book of Acts. And God willing, we shall continue on in this work, in this two-part work, soon enough in the book of Acts. So it's only the beginning. But this book, even if it is indeed, book one, even if it is indeed in some sense a prologue, it must end, there must be a conclusion to it. And how do we summarize this conclusion? How do we summarize that section that I read, particularly verses 49 to 53? How do we summarize that conclusion? Well, one way or another, I think it involves all the themes. This chapter as a whole, and perhaps these concluding verses, it it involves and ties together all the various themes that we've seen throughout the great book, the great gospel of Luke, particularly faith, through the means of grace, salvation through Christ, and yes, even the Gentiles, the extension of things and participation of the Gentiles, all these things can be found in various ways here. But I want to, I suppose we could take any one of those things and, and really spend a while on it. But among other things, this conclusion is a happy ending for the disciples. It hasn't always, we haven't always seen them at their best, and it hasn't always been so great for them. But now we see a happy ending for them, and isn't that what we all want to see for themselves and for ourselves? Well, I want us to think about these disciples enjoying the benefits of what Christ has won for them. Christ has done it. He has paid this price. He has died this death, and he has, he has now risen, and he has ascended 
And what is the net result of these things? It's joy, friends. That's one little theme that I am going to harp on this time. It's joy. Because the net result, of course, is the glory of God, and we could spend much time on that, and it's a larger point of all of it. We will speak of that. But the net result for us, for God's people, at the end of the day, is joy and thanksgiving and blessing. It was not for nothing. How pathetic and how sad would it have been at the end of of all this, all that Christ suffered and died for, at the end of that, to find the disciples miserable. In continual tears and fear and anxiety and depression, how pathetic would that have been? Not a scrap of the glory of God to be found in such a thing. He did all this because he loves us and he doesn't want us to see us miserable. Is that news to you? What he wants to see at the end of your days, beloved, is just what we see at the end of this. Continual joy and thanksgiving. Because he has done it all. It's good news. This is his plan for us. We have a tool for thinking about these things. In the, the shorter catechism, asking the question, what are the benefits? Right? What are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. There's a summary in these little categories of the benefits that we have right now. And, beloved, that is exactly what we see illustrated in these final verses. They are enjoying these benefits. So I'm going to look at the the sections, the events of the, the concluding verses through the lens of how it is that the disciples are enjoying the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection. So the title is Enjoying the Benefits, and there are four points. The promise, the blessing, the parting, the joy. First of all, the promise. In verse 49. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endured with power from on high. That word promise, I don't know if you've noticed it, particularly children. If you take a quick look there, you can notice that the word promise here is rightly in capital letters. I don't think so in, in any other place. Here in Luke's works on this subject, we find it capitalized and rightly so. Why? Because it refers to the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is not some power or some impersonal force, as some cults say that, that he is. But no, he is the third person of the Godhead, along with the Father and the Son. He is personal and, and real and equally God to be related to in personal and very reverent terms. And so as we capitalize things related to the Lord Jesus Christ, so we capitalize things related to the Spirit. And he is the promise. He is the comforter. And all those other things. In, the old, uh, in, in all these ways we see just as Christ would be capitalized in the Old Testament. When we find him in the pre-incarnate angel. Capitalized A, angel. So we find the spirit rightly. Capital P, promise. 
Now, the Holy Spirit is eternal. This, he's not new. He's not just being created at this moment. Of course not. He's God. And he has always been at work in this world. From the very moment of creation, we find the Spirit of God hovering in the void and the darkness. As he does this work of creation, at the command of the Word of God who speaks into that void. But he is going to be poured out in a whole new way now. Just as the Lord had promised in the prophets. Just as the Lord had promised in particular to his disciples. Say in John 14, 26. But the helper, capital H, helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things I said to you. And then as if that were not enough in the very next chapter of the Gospel of John. John 15, 26. But when the capital H helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father... Notice how that works. The Father will send in my name. Now he says, whom I will send you from the Father. The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And in particular, the the connection up of all these events, we've said that how how it is that the, the great work of these apostles was going to be to bear witness to what had happened. They don't have to do it. They don't have to, to accomplish a great work of redemption. All they have to do is go around and announce the good news. They have to relate these events. But even to do that much, they're going to need power to do it. And oh, how we're going to see that in the, as we move into the beginning of, the, of, of Acts. And we see these weak, sinful men being transformed into these extremely bold, powerful preachers, able to stand up to even the worst persecuting powers both of the Jews and of the Gentiles. We need this power. And that's the power that has been promised. To be witnesses to Christ throughout all the world, they're going to have the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. Now, as I say, the purpose of reminding them of this promise at this point, he's already said it, is twofold. One is just to prompt them to do what he's telling them to, which is wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes. It's to underline, look, the promise is coming Like I said, you go wait. I've already told you that, but you go wait in Jerusalem until he comes. The other larger purpose of that, overlaying that, is to reassure them that all will be well. If we parents leave a child for any reason, say the first day of school or otherwise, needing to leave them even for a brief period of time, leaving them with a babysitter at some point, we have to reassure them that all will be well. And it is, very use, it is very normal and useful for us to say, now look, auntie so-and-so will be with you. And, and they can call me and I'll be right back and, and all the rest of these things. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. It's better than auntie so-and-so. It's, it's the Holy Spirit, the very spirit that, that indwelled and was part, the third person of the, the, of the Godhead able, available to him, to them in a way even beyond that he was available to them. He was here, right there in their presence, but he wasn't in them and with them at all times in that way. Now the Spirit of God, the very Spirit that, that so empowered him and enabled him to do all these things would be in them. And by the way, he's going to be right back too. So we don't, even that aspect is, is there. He's coming back and he assures them of that. And so the larger purpose of all this is to reassure them that all will be well. He is not leaving them to their own devices. 
He assures them that he continues to care for them and has provided for them in his absence with the very best possible provision, the Holy Spirit. So wonderful, so amazing that it's even worth it that Christ is going to leave them for a time. That's one of the most unbelievable statements we ever find in the scriptures. When he says, it is is good that I go. Because when I go, then you're going to get the Spirit. You say, that's... It's impossible. How could it, in what calculus could it be a good thing for the Lord to leave them? But friends, his death and his resurrection were there to secure this greatest of gifts. And it was very much worth it for all that and even his temporary departure from them in order that they might have this greatest of gifts. Now, that's why he wants to reassure them of that. And Why? Why? Because the triune God loves them. He loves them. And if you love someone, you in various ways want to communicate that love to them. You know about this thing called love languages. You don't always have the same way that immediately occurs to us as someone is being loving to us. And we've got to work on that. And all of us need to be better at communicating love one to another. It's very true that we can have love somewhere deep inside, but a love that is never communicated He's not all that much use to the other person. Friends, God is the the past master at communicating his love to us. If you right now do not feel supremely loved by the Lord, it's because you're blind. It's because you're forgetful, you're unmindful, you you are directing your mind and heart to other things apart from what he has done for you. Because if you can think of any tiny fraction of what he's done and what he has said... And all the other ways in which he's communicated to you, then you would be very mindful and aware that he loves you. Now, one of the ways that you communicate love is gifts, giving gifts. And, of course, we know that if you give some gift of which it is utterly apparent that no thought has gone into it and has cost you nothing, it's going to be received in similar terms. There isn't much love to be communicated in such a gift. The Holy Spirit, that's a gift too precious to imagine. What a a gift to give on his parting from them for a time, just to remind them and let them know just how much he loves them indeed. This spirit that is too precious to imagine, that was won at the infinite cost of Christ's own blood. Beloved, this is assurance of God's love. Do you understand how that is? He is assuring them in every way that is possible of just how much God loves them. And this this assurance, this down payment, this promise of the Holy Spirit, this gift that he is giving, he himself, himself, the, the Holy Spirit, will become the basis of all these other things, particularly in them having joy in the Holy Ghost. What, that's part of the benefits. How are they going to have joy in the Holy Ghost? He's going to give the Holy Ghost to them in order that they might be fully assured of their good situation, fully assured of the love that God has for them, and therefore able to have this joy. Well, let's carry on. There's so much to say here. So that's the promise. Secondly is the blessing. Verse 50, he led them out as far as Bethany, and in passing, let me just notice that the village of Bethany seemed to be a place particularly favored by the Lord. 
And friends, if so, there is nothing new about that because there are many examples in the Old Testament and throughout Scripture of how the Lord blessed certain places above others. And that, by the way, provides one of the foundations for the idea of revival. It is merely a recognition that God blesses certain places at certain times more than he does others. That is all that we are saying in our hope and prayer for revival. Well, anyways, moving on, he says, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Friends, last acts are significant. Last words are significant. Last acts are significant as well. And this was Jesus' last act in the flesh on earth. What is he doing at this point? He's blessing them. He is blessing them. And that is hardly out of character for me. How, for, for them, how many times have we seen the Lord come to them saying, Peace to you. They might be fearful. Maybe it's in the middle of the storm. Maybe he's coming walking on the water towards them and they're exceedingly fearful, not just of, of the storm, but of someone walking on the water. And he says, Peace to you. And all these things, when he has found them fearful... After his death and he comes to them, he says, peace. And so now to have him depart and for him to have his hands raised up and blessing them is not out of character but what we find throughout all of this work. For he is the great high priest. We're going to speak a little bit about the benediction and how it is that this provides a foundation, a biblical warrant for ministers pronouncing a blessing, pronouncing a benediction. But there is, of course, a way in which was entirely unique to the Lord Jesus Christ as our great high priest. And he is able authoritatively and completely to pronounce blessing on these people. Do you think that blessing worked? Empty words, empty gesture? No, this is, a, this is an efficacious blessing. The Lord Jesus Christ raising up his hands and pronouncing blessing upon these disciples, friends, they are blessed and they know it. And they know it. Why does he do this? It's, it's rooted in granting and giving to them assurance of their good situation, of their pardon or sins. Because that same Jesus is coming again. Acts 1. Soon enough we'll come to that. Acts 1.11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He went up that way and he's coming back down this way soon enough. Don't worry. The angels as they also give impart assurance to them. But what if... Jesus, you know he's coming back. The next time you're going to see him in the flesh, he's going to come to judge the quick and the dead. And what if his last act as he comes up is to look askance a little bit at you, to kind of turn away and say, I don't know about you. How fearful would those disciples have been, wondering what sort of face and what sort of greeting they would receive when Christ returned to judge the living and the dead. The world out there should be thinking about that. Thinking about that a lot. But these disciples, these apostles, 
They don't, they don't have to ever think about that. They never did have to think about that because the last thing that they saw of the Lord Jesus Christ, both in his act and in his word, his word and his deed, were to pronounce blessing upon them. And friends, that will work. That will sustain them then through every trial and temptation that remained, whether their lives were, were short and soon enough one of their number was going to be martyred, or whether it was long, the Apostle John. And it was that assurance of their good situation would be enough for them. They will have peace of conscience, that benefit that the the catechism reminds us is for all those who are in Christ Jesus. They will have peace of conscience. And they will have the, the basis for perseverance into the end. So I say that perseverance was going to be tested in many ways. I, I say this is a happy ending, but you understand that some of them suffer greatly in the years to come. But they had joy through it all. Because their basis for perseverance, their assurance of these things was so total and complete that nothing could shake it. Nothing could ultimately destroy it, certainly. Maybe indeed... As many believers do, their assurance may take a hit over time. But because it was based in something so solid as this, it could not ultimately be destroyed. And so they went to their ends. Praising God even to suffer for the name of Christ sometimes. That's the blessing the Lord gives. The promise, the blessing... Thirdly, the parting. In verse 51, Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. This is the doctrine of the ascension. Those, that's a new word. It is useful to have these technical terms to briefly describe what we're talking about. This, what it briefly describe the contents of scripture. This is the ascension. And just to spell things out because... Ian Hamilton is always fond of pointing to someone else who is fond of pointing out that he's amazed to find that there are some people in his congregation that didn't know that Christ still had a body. And he's aghast at this, and so am I. And so I remind us of the basic things that Christ was really both God and man. He was God and man in one person. He really died and he really rose again with a physical body, albeit glorified, no longer subject to some of the frailties and limitations we have now, yet with holes, yet with the scars still in him. And he remained on earth after his, his, his resurrection for 40 days in that same body. There was a good purpose for it. Acts 1.3 will tell us, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. Look, at the end of the day, Luke is saying, all you have is a means of grace. 99.999% of people throughout all of history are going to have the means of grace, the word of God, and that's that's it. But that doesn't mean that the means of grace are not uh, founded on something extremely solid. They are. And that's what we have, these infallible proofs. He presented himself alive after his sufferings by many infallible proofs, being seen by them for 40 days. And speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So there is a usefulness then for his 40 days. But his work is done. He's given as many infallible proofs as, as, as are possible. And now he must go. 
And he ascended in, into heaven in that same body which he retains now. Right now, the Lord Jesus Christ is there having that body with which he rose from the grave in which he ascended up into heaven, and we shall see him again. We shall see him, whether if we die or whether he precedes us, he comes again this evening, it will be in his body that he had. But for now, there was a parting of ways. As I say, Jesus had finished his work and it was necessary. Now, having having given these infallible proofs, arming his people with a firmest basis for their testimony, it is necessary for him to leave them. And he's given, by the way, his final instructions to them. He's given them this assurance. But he's returning to his father. John 14, 28, you've heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said, I'm going to the Father. It's sad for them to be parted from him for a time. It's not so sad for the Lord because he's going to be with his Father. And there was great joy in that. And so he says, if you, love, if you love me, you would rejoice, even at this parting, because of what it means for him to return to his father after this long separation. Now, of course, we understand he was never fully away from his father. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit remain united eternally. That is our God, and there is no other God. But, of course, having taken on human flesh, it introduced a new measure a new uh, distance that he had never known before. And the Lord, among his other joys, was certainly looking forward to being again with his Father. Well, this is the parting of ways, and even that could have and should have been something to rejoice in if they loved him, and they did. And fourthly and finally, What remains then, the continual part of this, the thing by which we are left, the words that are kind of echoing in our minds as we come to the end of the Gospel of Luke, after all this, is joy. Verse 52, they worshipped him. This is what they're doing while they're still there. They haven't returned yet, and let's remind ourselves of that. Whenever Christ is revealed to us, what is the response? Whenever we see a glimpse of the Son of God, what is the response? It's to worship I don't think any of them had to have a, a particular uh, command to do that. I don't think Christ said, now is the time to worship. I, I don't think the senior apostle present had to call them to worship. I think they just did. So they have seen something new that they hadn't seen before. They knew Jesus Christ in the flesh. That was amazing. They saw him die. That was something new. And all the signs that came with it, they they saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ. They're seeing him more. They worship him then. And now they're seeing the ascending Lord Jesus Christ up into heaven. Some more part of their Christology that they hadn't known. Some more part of their theology they hadn't known. Aspects of the, the, the attributes of their God which are new to them. They are seeing Christ as he really is. And they worship him. And beloved, that must be our response. If you leave here having not worshipped, it's because you haven't seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ spiritually. 
And if that's the case, either I have failed or you have failed, you're unregenerate something. But if you've seen even even a scrap, even a tiny little shred of something of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, then your right response is to worship. That's why this pulpit is so central. Look forward to these other means. Absolutely. We are so glad to be able to worship God in song, but what is central to all of that is the word of God. Centrally through whom, and even the other means of grace receive their meaning. There would otherwise be mute signs and wouldn't really mean much, but rather through the word of God. And yes, through them also the, the sacraments, Christ is revealed to us. And because of that, we worship. But they returned. That was as they saw him ascending. They worshiped. Of course they did. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. These activities, all the details, the things that happened are explained in much greater detail in Acts chapter 1. But this is the two-part summary of their activities. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy. That's what they were seeking. That's what they were doing. And then furthermore, that they were in the temple continually praising and blessing God. Now, I want us to see that two declarations of great joy, not just joy. Look carefully at the text. Not just joy, but great joy. In fact, it was, it was wonderful to me to be reading in the Greek text and, and realizing just the, the bountiful way in which this is articulated. You couldn't really say it anymore. And maybe if I was an English teacher and somebody had written something, I would say, now be careful with these superlatives. Try to keep the things tamped down a little bit. You don't want to use too many exclamation points and all the rest of it. But friends, there's no restraint here. Okay, all restraints are off linguistically, and it's, it's great joy. That's the only way to describe the way they return to Jerusalem. And I want us to be reminded that actually two declarations of not just joy, but great joy frame the entire book of Luke. It was Luke 2.10, a long time ago, I know, but Luke 2.10, the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The tidings of great joy. And they, boy, those, those shepherds, I don't know if they grasp even a tiny bit of what you and I know, but they knew enough, and they got with the program, and, and there was joy. There was joy. They received those tidings, the good tidings of great joy from the, the angel. But now the, the disciples know a lot more than those, than those shepherds, and there is great joy in these things. Great joy. Beloved, I want us to understand that as far as we're concerned, yes, our duty is to glorify God, but as far as our subjective reception, the end product that God wants to see in us, and yes, of course, it's sanctification. Yes, of course, it's holiness. But the the summary condition which he wishes to see in his people is great joy. Not mediocre joy. He doesn't look at us and say, all right, he's got a kind of medium grade of joy, and that's fine. In fact, better leave it there because we don't want things to go too far. Let's keep it nice 
and mediocre. No, he wants great joy in us. Inasmuch as our joy is deficient, inasmuch as there is one iota of joy that isn't yet, yet there, the Lord's not pleased with that. The Lord did an awful lot in order to, to, to bring great joy to the heart of his disciples. Do you think he, he did something for that? Yes, he did. Went to great trouble to do it. And friends, he wants us to be rejoicing always, continually. Again, I say this is the closing portion. This is, this is the thought that he's leaving with, but it's a continual aspect. Continually. He returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and then what? They were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. You know, that's what they do in, in response. It's funny, again, also the blessing. You, don't, you probably don't think about it, but actually Jesus blesses them. He pronounces a benediction upon them. But the same word, they are blessing him. You can understand, maybe. You can grasp the idea of Jesus blessing them. They needed it. What then is the purpose of man blessing God? Well, that's exactly what that temple was there for. It was built that man ought to bless and worship the living God. They, see, they, they look and they see the, the reality of the resurrection. It's finally hit them. It's taken them a while. They're not the sharpest tools. And, and to add to it, they are a little bit reticent to receive these, these good tidings. Spiritually, they're deficient. Intellectually, they're deficient. Morally, they're deficient. They're not the greatest. But it's finally hit them. He's really risen. The reality of the risen Lord Jesus is his triumph over death has now come to them. And then beyond that, they have this promise of the Holy Spirit. It's not, not the end. Beloved, it's only the beginning of the great adventure. Yes, Jesus is leaving him, but it's only the beginning. Only the beginning. They're about to receive an even greater measure of blessing. That's the beauty, by the way, of the doctrine of progressive sanctification. The, the, the Lord is saying it's just the beginning. Actually, he's going to tell us more. He's going to give us more of himself. We're going to be more like him over time until we're finally going to get it all. And be as blessed as any creature could be. And so they are joyful. Oh, and I can't forget the promise of the return. They heard that from the angels as well. He himself is coming. It's good enough that you have the Holy Spirit, but look, he himself is going to return soon enough. What, what more? You, you, you could ask on the one hand what information or what is making them joyful, or on the other hand, you could say, what don't they have? What, could they, what do they possibly lack in all these things? They have all the ammunition to be joyful that is known to mankind. So they bless God in response. When the Lord blesses a, uh, pronounces a blessing upon them, we know it's real, it's efficacious, it does something, and those who are the recipients of that blessing will be blessed. But is the blessing pronounced by believers upon their God any less real? Actually, no, no. We declare God to be blessed, and so he is blessed. We are only speaking the truth. Now, the lack of our, our withholding of our blessing from God does not decrease God. It could not decrease God. Well, this is the great work that we are designed to do. God desires us to return our blessing and thanksgiving. This is our great work, friends. 
praising God, worshiping God for his words and works, seeing how he is, seeing his son, the image of the invisible God, and returning thanks, blessing the living God, being joyful. That's what we're supposed to do. And friends, there is joy in doing what you're designed to do. Right? It's one of the problems of our modern world. It tries to force people to do things that they're not designed to do. Even in this crazy project of 100% egalitarianism, trying to say that the only way that you can be fulfilled as a woman is to be exactly like a man, and the only way you can be fulfilled as a man is to be exactly like a woman. It's crazy. No wonder there's so much suppression. God designed us to do certain things. And we are most fulfilled as we most closely approximate doing the kind of things that God has designed us to do. It's not, it's not weird. And friends, however, our vocations, because of this fallen world and our culture, however much that it just doesn't work out for us to do the ideal kind of vocation as God has, we might wish, we might feel that we're, we're gifted in this brief amount of time, Friends, there is one thing that overrides everything else that every one of us, men and women, young and old, children, every last one of us are called to do and designed to do, and that is to be joyful in our giving, our continual giving of thanks and praise of the living God. We get every opportunity to do that. No one can keep us from that. That's what we're designed to do. Continual joy. Well, let me now apply these things briefly. The first application of this wonderful, happy ending of them, enjoying the benefits, is just that we should desire the Holy Spirit. We'll speak of him much more in, in the, the book of Acts. But for you unbelievers, for those who have not yet put their faith in Christ, I want you to understand there is a greatest of inducements, a great benefit, a blessing which you, you know nothing of. And that is the Holy Spirit. Luke eleven thirteen says this, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Right? Just, just consider how good this gift must be. If at such a cost the Lord Jesus procured this gift for you. And that's one way of thinking. Yes, of course, he died in order that you might be justified, that your sins might be washed away. It's blessing enough. But on the other, in a more positive way, besides washing you, he's also there to give you something. That's something we see in baptism. Good way to think about it. The picture involved in baptism, yes, is a washing away of sin. But it is also the conferring of a wonderful benefit upon someone. It's not given automatically in water baptism. But it's pointing to something greater than that. It's pointing to the reception of the Holy Spirit. To the spirit baptism. Which people, when they are believers, in order to be believers indeed, they receive the Holy Spirit Yes, their sin is washed away and they're given this wonderful new righteousness of Christ in them and this wonderful personal agent of holiness in them. What a gift. What a gift. 
We should desire it greatly, and we should pray for it, and we should pray for one another. We should pray for our friends and neighbors and relatives and loved ones that they would receive that gift. And brothers and sisters, if we are believers, we should be continually being filled by the Spirit, as He is the Spirit of joy. And do not be drunk, Ephesians 5 says, do not be drunk with wine, which is, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. That's the command for believers to be continually being filled with the Spirit. As we are fueled by the Word of God in these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, So we should rightly estimate this gift of the Holy Spirit. The second application is that it's a good thing that I do the benediction. We believe in the regular principle. We believe that we only do the things that we have scriptural warrant to do. We don't just make up things in worship. And that is a firm and final line that is to be drawn because we only want to do the things that are pleasing to our God. And is it just a meaningless gesture then that I close this worship service with a a benediction? Was it a meaningless gesture when Christ raised his hands and pronounced a blessing upon the, the disciples? No way. Absolutely not. Friends, I speak to you on God's behalf. I lift up my hands to bless you on God's behalf. You say, well, okay, I understand it worked among them. It was Christ speaking to the disciples. But what if there's an unbeliever among us right now? And I raise my hand and I pronounce a benediction and blessing. What then? Well, if he is an unbeliever, he will surely reject it just like he does the gospel as a whole. And it will do him no good but rather harm. Absolutely. But if he suddenly, at the last moment, changes his mind, he's been opposing God and opposing his preacher all throughout the sermon service and now benediction is pronounced and he has a sudden change of heart and he hears these words and he wants like anything for them to be true words of blessing and and speaking of God being at peace with him and and giving him a countenance of of love and of blessing and acceptance rather than of judgment and condemnation Words that are proclaimed in which the Lord is my friend rather than my enemy. He says, I would do anything for those words to be true. And which his face towards me is the smiling face of blessing rather than the awful face of wrath. Words in which he leaves me in peace, in which he tells me he loves me. I would do anything for these things to be true. Do you know what happens in friends? He gets what he wants. It happens, and all those words become true if they are received in faith. That's why we do the benediction. Thirdly and finally, joy, which is the great thing. The great thing of this gospel, the great thing that we began with, the great thing that we are left with, is this wonderful, continual joy. And my friends, if we come to the Lord stoically asking, what are your instructions, Master? So I try to make it through another tedious day as your servant. And we are coming in the wrong mode entirely. Okay? And the Lord, if, if you did do that, his response would be something like, you must be thinking of somebody else. Maybe you're thinking of Pharaoh 
back then. Slave master. I'm not your slave master. I've come to set you free. I've come to give you great joy. Just like these ones that you see here. These are your example. New believer, old believer. These are your example. Joy. Continual thanksgiving. That's what I want you to have. I've done the work for you. Now, thankfully, he's also given meaningful work for us to do. That's wonderful, isn't it? It's a wonderful thing that all these people had a very meaningful work that was in front of them to do. It's going to be a great adventure. But as for slaving away, no, 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 he's done that. And, and the Lord, I think, would say, my instructions, you want to know what my instructions are for you this day? Be joyful. I, I just want you to rejoice and to overflow with joy at the good things that I've done for you. Yes, be part of my work. It's your, your privilege to do that. I want you to, to be joyful. And these are my instructions to you, people of God.